Hello, and welcome to Queer by Birth, Proud by Choice. I am your host, Jake Federowski. My pronouns are they, them, and I navigate the world as a white, genderqueer individual. Today, I'll be speaking with A.L. Hugh, architect, facilitator, and organizer, whose work across the design field and within communities is to understand and rethink the architect's role in creating inclusive spaces. So, Al, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) To kick things off, um, would you mind sharing your pronouns and then anything that you may be bringing to the conversation today, anything that's been on your mind, either inside or outside of the world of architecture and design? Sure. Um, Hi, I'm Al. My pronouns are they, them. I am a non-binary queer person who is an architect. I guess the questions I'm bringing today, I just got off of a different uh, Zoom session for a program that I was in in 2017. Um, I came back as an alumni called the Civic Leadership Program. And they, they were asking about like, what were your experiences back in the program? I was part of the first cohort and I shared a lot and not, not just because it's Pride Month, but I shared a lot about like my own personal journey with my gender and how that influences my work in architecture and my activism and stuff like that. So I'm kind of in this like reflective space already, kind of like time traveling a little bit. So I'm excited to get into this conversation. Oh, wonderful. I always like to start with asking the guests what pride means to them. And in that reflective space, how does that tie into these thoughts on uh, your journey with gender and identity? That's a really good question. Pride to me personally is pretty complicated and tough. And sometimes I just think of it as just like my acceptance of myself and my showing up into architecture and design spaces as myself, just because architecture and design are so heavily dominated by white cis men and just like being there, like even if it's just a Zoom screen and I, and I show up, it's like that itself is like an act of pride um, where I'm not like hiding myself. And I think that that also goes back to sort of the way that I grew up too. So my parents are from Taiwan um, and they came in the 80s. Um, So I'm a first generation Asian American. And pride was never something that I grew up with. It was always just like, you're working hard, you're being good, you're like, you're not causing any trouble. There weren't a lot of conversations about my individuality. And my parents were really good at kind of letting me be a kid and letting me kind of express myself the way that I wanted to. But it's like when I got a little bit older, it became more about like, you have to like, uh, like study certain things in college or be a certain way to be like an Asian person in the world. Um, And that's, that's always kind of top of mind when I think about pride, because it's like a very personal feeling. Um, And so when I defined it for myself, um, I was kind of like, I've never had the experience of being really like flamboyant or like out 
especially with my parents or had that experience kind of growing up. So like, I consider just the act of like showing up to be um, an act of pride and an act of like, this is just who I am and we're not going to compromise on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when was the moment that you first felt proud in and of your queer body? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I I don't know if I could pinpoint an, an exact moment, but it was definitely when my kind of inner vision of my queer self and the outer visual, like expressed version of me matched, which required both um, like physical change, like cutting my hair and going to the gym and stuff like that. And a lot of mental change, which was, I consider the mental change like a much more difficult process (laughs) than the physical change. Maybe because like in our society, it's like, oh, we have gyms for like working out your body, but we don't have gyms for working out your mind. you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's, there was a lot of kind of accepting myself within my own mental headspace and being comfortable with the way that I was, but also finding myself and how I define myself more concretely and where I fit in. And so I would say that that kind of happened a few years after coming out because I feel like when I first came out I was just like okay time to do like all the queer things like to try everything out um to like be super queer and like figure out where like the edges of my identity are and then once I kind of figured that out it's like I found the space where I was most comfortable and the space where I most accepted myself that's I think that's when I first felt proud of being in my queer body so it's like showing up in like a professional space as just who I am without without really without hiding myself um was really important to me and once you've had that moment or were you know were able to kind of blend that the inner and the outer as you were talking about how do you now navigate that in the professional world within like your personal network of like friends and relationships, but then also with your family. I would imagine that that changes in those different situations or it it presents different challenges depending on the space that you're in or does it? I mean, maybe it doesn't. How do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And that's starting to touch on this point that I believe that Um, You know how everyone says that like coming out is a process and that it happens over and over. I feel like being proud is also a process and that happens over and over. And it can, being proud can look like different things in different situations. Um, So definitely with my family, it's been about being assertive about like, I want you to call me by this name. Um, I... I'm going to make choices about my own body, like without your input, that kind of thing, like setting those boundaries and then doing the thing that I want to do, knowing that I'm, that my decision affects them, but it's like not the end of the world. And it's like, they don't control me within professional settings. I would say it's a little more of like, like a, like being a rabble rouser (laughs) a little bit. 
just because it is such like a conservative cis hetero white space when i when i'm in those situations i i am sometimes i almost ask myself if i'm being queer enough <laughs> cuz mm. it's it's very easy to be like right i'm an architect i can blend in really easily i can talk about kind of the same things that everyone else talks about i have the same language um but i'm constantly asking myself like how do i push the conversation further how do i kind of bring queerness into those spaces beyond just like the way that I present myself, but also, yeah, like bringing it into like almost like an ideological or like philosophical level, like making sure the conversations are shift a little bit more um, beyond what we just usually talk about. Mm-hmm. As you talk about the, the state of the industry, does it feel like, you bringing your queer self to the industry and to your work is more of a personal thing or is it more of a, like, I'm doing this for others um, and for those who may be struggling, right? Like, is it, that's my question. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah. What's the difference between like the personal side of it or like the mentor, the, you know, the, the paving the way, the, the creating the space for those individuals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's it's a little bit of both. I think um, for me personally, it is about like almost selfishly like trying to find the community and build the community that I belong in. Um, just because I don't really see that in architecture completely, like fully. Um, so it, in that way, it is personal. Um, I think back to when I came out in grad school. I had a really supportive group of friends. And I feel like if if it had gone any other way, I would not be the person that I am, you know? So it is it is kind of a personal thing and also a thing where I'm trying to pay it forward and a thing where I'm connecting it to like histories of queer activism and thinking about how it's like queerness in architecture isn't this completely new thing, but it's this history that just hasn't been documented um, hasn't been fully explored. So it's sort of bringing that into the process and honoring those histories as a way to change the profession in a way. And yeah, to, to create the space. I've, I've been kind of outspoken about um, my gender and my queerness and my opinions for a while. And I feel very lucky that I'm given a lot of different platforms to kind of just like be loud. And <laughs> I I used to be really self-conscious about that because I was always like, oh, I'm like oversharing, like I'm tweeting too much or I'm, I'm sharing too many personal things. But then I hear a lot from people, like a lot of people I haven't met either who are like, grateful that I kind of put myself out there because it makes them feel more comfortable living out their own truths, like whether they're queer or not, or uh, it makes them feel more comfortable being more political about their work because they're seeing me kind of figuring out a way to use my platforms to do that. And so I feel like if I can inspire people to move toward their passion or to also be loud, it's like, I feel like there is not enough of that kind of like political loudness in architecture because so much of it is just like answering to capital, like where the funding is and like 
designing so that the building gives like maximum profit, that kind of thing. Um, like we're basically just cogs in the machine and it's like waking up and, and actually like finding what you're passionate about and what you're proud about personally, like whether that's queerness or not is, is something I think that's important for um, the profession moving forward. Yeah. It's the importance of the, of the representation, both inside and outside of the, the industry, I think. And that can go for any industry in my, in my opinion. I mean, some some industries are further along and you see that representation mm-hmm. but some are still on that journey and um yeah it is just so important to have that yeah it's like there's some there's narratives there are dominant narratives that have been prioritized for so long that it feels weird or wrong to bring in other narratives but it's like that's exactly what we need like mm-hmm. that's those dominant narratives are the ones that people are trying to fit their lives into that doesn't work for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um so the more that we kind of um explode the narrative and expand the narrative the better yeah yeah well i wonder if we could get a little bit further into the field of architecture and design and something that i've been thinking about in preparation for this conversation is queer space Mm -hmm. and what that is i mean what is space what is queer space what is queered space what is queering space i wonder if you might talk a little bit about what those words mean to you yeah to me queer space means any space that a queer person uses so really it's like all spaces are queer spaces um (laughs) I understand that like in a more like academic or even like professional setting, queer spaces can become like, oh, it's a gender neutral bathroom or like, oh, it's the gay club. It's like, uh, it's much more than that. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's like we're everywhere. I would say um, that there has been kind of a focus in architecture on those things because it's easy to kind of like silo it that way. But I consider uh, queering space as a much more like political and emotional type of thing in the sense that it's not just about the final product and what it looks like or a particular aesthetic or something like that. Like it's definitely not rainbows on everything. Um, It's a lot about the process of how something is designed. And that speaks to... Um, like who's involved in the process, who's, whose voices are being heard, who's getting to make the decisions on the programming of a certain space, like what, what a certain space will be used for in the future. Um, is it like flexible so that multiple uses can be incorporated? And then the process of um, thinking about the relationships that'll happen within the space as well and the interactions. Um, so again, not just thinking about how will this space make money or like how much rent will this bring in, but like how will this space serve the community in building spaces uh, where where people can gather or people can connect, and how how does it sort of better the lives of um, people who are traditionally left out of the process? Um, mm. That to me is queering space, like making the space for people who 
um, are traditionally excluded from space. And then um, making sure that that whole process, the whole design process is equitable and inclusive. Mm -hmm. I was looking up the the transgender district that is located in San Francisco, which was originally originally named the Compton's Transgender Cultural District. And that was founded by Honey Mahogany, Janetta Johnson, and Arya Saeed. But I was listening to um, Olin's Preserving and Interpreting Queer Landscapes this week. And Arya, the, the, the acting president and chief strategist, had said something about how queer and trans folks have not owned the land that they stand on, or they, they don't feel like they own the land that they stand on. And that disconnect is really difficult when you are talking about this feeling of pride. How how can you be proudful and how can you be your authentic self when you don't feel like you belong on the, the land or in the space that you are residing in? Um, and so the importance of creating that that queer space or that space that is for that group can be so helpful to to everyone within that community and to the livelihood of that that group of people because you know i feel like there if you were to ask anyone just on the street they would say that well isn't just like isn't all space just for everyone isn't space just neutral you know how, why does it have to be queer space why does it have to be you know the reality is so much of the space that's been created has been been shaped through this cis white male gaze and has just excluded so many different groups of people in that process um whether that be for profit or for you know whatever the the goal or intention was and so it just goes to show that we do need these queer spaces we do need these spaces that are going to serve as a, a home and as a a place of community for the queer uh, community, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can I add something? Yeah, yeah, go for it. One thing is that um, about ownership, it's not always about like owning the land. So that's like a very concrete way of thinking about it too. It's also about just like feeling ownership over like a a design or a place and that can be something that's like co-created with other people like it's not it's not always about like the the like generational wealth or something though it is it is about that too it's also about like reclaiming a space and transforming it into um something that is for everybody and to your point about spaces being designed with the cis kind of white hetero gaze queer design and queer spaces definitely has intersections with design justice which is more about how racism shows up in spaces because it's all kind of within that same ecosystem of like designing spaces in a specific way so that some people are oppressed and some people have power within it yeah I, I totally agree that makes me think of so I recently saw like a panel about like the future of cities you know like one of those mm. like really aspirational like let's talk about the future type things and the panel was like for cis men and I was like how are you gonna have a, a conversation about the future of cities without including like women or like people of color even on a basic level like what a feminist city would look like would blow people's minds Mm -hmm. 
And that's like, that's just barely the tip of the iceberg of like design justice or queer design. You know, there's a lot of work to do, I think. (laughs) Once again, it brings us back to that representation matters. And by you bringing that queer self to the work, it is, um, it's putting a voice and putting a stake in that in, you know, when, when a panel of four cis white men comes to the table, you can say, well, Hey, there Mm -hmm. are all these other people that are a part of the future of this city and of this planet. Um, Those voices need to be included, whether that's the queer community, women or trans siblings. I mean, they all deserve a a voice in that conversation because we're all here. <laughs> right. We're, you know, we're, we're here and we will be here. We have been here. And so we all need to be included in that. You talked earlier, or you said something about history not having been documented or kind of brought forward, um, specifically like the queer design and queer architecture. I wonder how in this movement, we can also reclaim that space and make sure that those important spaces within our queer history are maintained and brought to the table and talked about and not just kind of swept under the rug and erased. How do we incorporate that into this movement as well? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, We've been talking about that a bit through um, the initiative that I started called Queries, um, which right now looks like a big survey for um, queer architects and designers. And one of the questions is, who are your queer design icons? And most people were like, I don't have one. Like, I don't think I've ever learned about one. Or if I did, it wasn't explicit to me that they were queer. And there were also a lot of people who pushed back on the idea of like an icon to begin with, of like, why, why do we have to kind of like idolize different designers and try to become them? Um, so I think part of the uh, recognizing queer designers in history is recognizing that there are a lot of people who are doing like work in the background or doing like organizing work that may not have uh turned out like may not have materialized into a building or anything like that um like not a physical built thing that you think like architecture is you know Mm -hmm. but laid the groundwork for like more activism to come yeah kind of set the framework and sort of honoring that type of history that's something that i have not like really kind of dived into really but i i think about sort of all of the people that we lost, like the generation of young architects that we lost in the 80s and the 90s from the AIDS epidemic. And it's like, that was, I mean, I was I was born in 1990, so I was like a baby when that was happening. But it's like, that was not so long ago. And it's mm-hmm. like, that is almost just like a giant gaping hole, like an empty kind of like place <laughs> in architecture that's kind of been filled by other practices and other like architectural theory, uh, theories and stuff like that. But I think un- uncovering those narratives will be really important and understanding that we're not creating something completely new, but we're kind of reclaiming and rewriting the narrative by way of uncovering it. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
it's doing the work because like like we just we keep saying those people existed and it's doing the work to uncover that history that narrative and then to further educate and to continue to push that narrative and to share that with future generations we're kind of in like that weird spot where we're the generation that is almost tasked with like uncovering that right and then like making sure that it's preserved for the next generation yeah because we we did we lost so many so many people so many ideas it's you know doing that work to make sure that that it, that it's preserved and that it's taught and educated i mean i i remember back when i was in college and taking my first like LGBT history and never having any of that education in my like K through 12 years. And just for the first time being like, wow, like all of that existed, but you just, you just don't know that. Right. And it's not like an LGBT history is you, it's not usually required or, you know, mandated that everyone take that, but I just, it's so important that specifically the queer community and queer uh, young queer individuals dive into that history and make sure that it's that they they know you know beyond Stonewall. There's so much more rich information and people and events and things that can influence how we move forward. Yeah, I agree, and it's it's also about. Um, documenting what's happening right now too. That's part of what queries is mm. of like asking the questions and being like, answer these where you are right now. Um, there are a lot of people who uh, uh, on Instagram this month on queries, um, I'm sort of highlighting different responses. And part of it is highlighting the fact that a lot of people are just like, whoa, I need to do research. I don't know any queer icons or like, I can't think of any. And then there, there are always some people who respond with like, there are queer elders now who are alive now that you could be talking to. And it's like, that's part of it too, of like recognizing that, that the present is actively becoming history. It's like the present is the present, but it's like, there, there are people who are living their queer lives right now too and that's going to be important to remember and learn about as well um and that's why i think it it it's bigger than like diversity equity inclusion discourse you know it's not about just checking the boxes or counting the number of queer people even though it, it kind of is <laughs> too but it's also mm -hmm. about like the stories and experiences of people's lives and where they're coming from that makes it a little deeper than um, just diversity or just inclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've spoken about queries a little bit and I'm intrigued to hear more about a, how that project came to be, but B, as we were talking about what is queer space, what is a queer digital space and how, you know, as we live in this really digital world, how does your work within the architecture and design field, how can that translate into this digital world? And how do we create both physical and digital queer space? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Owen. I could start with how did queries come about? So this this all goes back not too long ago to graduate school. Um, again, I had that really supportive group of friends in um, architecture school. We started the, I went to Columbia GSAP, which is a graduate school of architecture planning and preservation. And we started the queer students of architecture planning and preservation, so QSAP. Um, okay. Yeah, it was it was really it was it was fun. Um, <laughs> it was just great to have that community. Yeah. Um, and so when I was graduating, I was like, "Uh oh, like I'm about to go sit in an architecture office for hours on end, staring at the computer. Like, how do I maintain this community? How do I like make sure that I still have like a queer group of friends who are also into design? Like, how do we maintain this connection um, instead of having it as like a one time thing?" Um, so at the end of graduate school, I had an opportunity to apply for um, some fellowship funding. And that's kind of when I conceived of the idea of doing like a big survey, like having people share it with each other and then having conversations about it. And back then, not that long ago, um, <laughs> this was 2017, um, things were in person. I was like, oh, we can have events, like we can have mm -hmm. little networking events and stuff like that. I did not get funded, but that was okay because I think I was going through a lot just coming out of graduate school and it was like, I needed a little bit more time. Um, so it's kind of been this idea that's been stewing around in my brain. I am active on Twitter. So I tweeted about it a few times. And then finally, right before the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, everybody, like all the queer architects I know, give me your email addresses. I'm going to start this thing, finally. And then it didn't really start until like the summertime because <laughs> then the pandemic hit and I was just like, oh my God, like how do you build community during this time? Like mm -hmm. when we're all on Zoom and uh, we, we can't like be together in physical space, which is super important. But it the virtual space is kind of what makes it so interesting because um instead of having it focused like just on New York City and like so many architecture, so many queer things are focused only on New York City. Um, I could reach people um, all over the country. And there are even like a few people from um, other countries who have responded to the survey um, who were also interested in this like project of building community. And so we, we, we've got responses from people in like Texas, Florida, California, Michigan, all these all these different places, Minnesota. Um, <laughs> and it's become a not so regular newsletter. I don't try to like push myself to publish things just because uh, just because I need to push something out. And the the space where we meet up is also kind of like that too, where it's a little bit ad hoc. It's like, if there's a topic to talk about, we'll meet about it and have a discussion. If there's something interesting coming out of the responses, um, we'll meet up and talk about it. Try to do those monthly, but it's also like I'm I'm respectful of my own time and everyone else's time. But that speaks to your question about what is queer digital space. And I think that that shows up in a lot of different ways, just because there's so many different types of digital media. But I think it's very tied to social media and very tied to the relationships that we have with each other. Um, it's very much about the people and I mean, it's about the content, but it's also like more about the people 
than about the content, I think. And what I mean is it's more than just like a pretty picture on Instagram or like an interesting news article or something like that. It's about like the backstory and the process and the connection that can arise from whatever that content is. So yeah, that's that's the way that I view queer digital space. And in a way, like Zoom has kind of made it kind of made it easier. I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to really suss that out. But I at least for me personally, I have been able to connect with a lot of queer people um, that I usually would not have met if I were in person going to work, like staying within architecture circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, there's so much conversation right now about, especially during this time, and, you know, we're all kind of having to analyze our practices and look at, you know, how much time am I actually spending on my phone, you know, throughout the day? Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much conversation about the the negative side effects of our usage of social media. But at the same time, there's something about social media's ability to connect people both within your immediate community who may not feel like they can bring their full self to that space, but also the national and international community. I just, I, I can't even imagine what my experience personally would have been without that, you know, without technology and without that ability to connect with people across, you know, state lines and, I'm really, I'm super grateful for social media. And I think that it can create a really positive, effective queer space, you know, if used correctly. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Yeah. What I, what I always think about is that social media for all of like the negative press it gets, it, uh, it kind of closes the gap between like, what you can and can't do almost like because it makes it so easy to get personal and to and to connect like you said I remember back when Facebook was still a thing like organizing events on Facebook and then like messaging people to be like are you coming are you coming are you coming Mm -hmm. and like in real life it would have taken me like a whole day to kind of like find everybody and ask if they were coming but having that digital space makes it a lot easier. And I would also say that there's there's also an aspect to digital space where you're allowed to like present yourself differently if you wanted to. That also gets a bad rap because it's like, oh, you're curating your Instagram feed to show like a perfect version of yourself or whatever. But for some people, it's like, that's a space where they can experiment. That's where you can like try things on and it only lives in the digital space, doesn't have to like affect any other part of your life. Um, mm-hmm. Or if it does like that, that might be like a side effect, but it's like digital spaces can also be places where people are learning about themselves and building their identities in a space that's safer than doing like in person or in real life. So I wanted, yeah, I wanted to touch on that a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I wonder if we might kind of circle back to the world of architecture 
and just kind of touch on the question of what is the architect's role in facilitating accessible and inclusive spaces and what has that experience been like for you as a queer individual yeah that's a really good question and i love the word that you use i love that you said facilitate because i do think of architects as facilitators they're obviously like designers and people who know stuff about construction and know the language of that and can draw on the computer but most of all i think they are facilitators of conversations about how the built environment could be. And that is like a really long and complicated process that includes design, but also includes facilitating those conversations with people and honoring their experiences and then incorporating those experiences into some type of built form that could be useful, could be beautiful, could be yeah utility or could be like an aesthetic thing. I think architects have a really important role in listening um, to their communities. And I'm grateful that I am uh, working in a job that allows me to do that now. I think in my previous work, it was it was definitely listening to people, but listening more to like clients and listening more to like, these are the people who are like paying us the money. And so this is how the project is going to look. Um, and they're kind of giving the orders from the top versus now I'm doing work with a nonprofit called Ascendant Neighborhood Development. And um, we're doing community engagement with our current residents. So, so thinking about the people who are living in the buildings right now, and how sort of the amenities can be more accessible to them and just hearing their stories and not like just immediately coming in and being like, this is our vision for a beautiful backyard or something like that. It's like, what do you need for the backyard? What's working for you right now? What's not working? What are sort of the short-term things that we can do? And then what are longer-term plans that we can do? And how can we continue this relationship? How can we continue that kind of design conversation so it's not just a one-off like here's your product here's the end of the project kind of thing but like how can we support you as you are living and growing in the building it's more embracing the relational side of architecture um so it feels less like surgery almost feels less like you're coming in like dropping in like a new thing a new building but is this ongoing relationship? Because it's like the things that architects design get kind of interacted with on a daily basis. And like people build relationships with those things. So it's like, it, it makes more sense to have architects play kind of like a long-term role than, than a really, really short-term role. Mm -hmm. You said that design is a conversation. And that relationship between designer and client or whoever that may be is going to better the product through that conversation without that conversation you get a really you may get you you'll get a product but it's going to be a service level piece that you know as we talked about earlier didn't listen to the voice of whoever that client is, right? The importance of kind of elevating those voices through that process, queer or not, is so important to that 
um, to that final product. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people, a lot of architects will say that they don't have any power and they're just they're just kind of following directions or like the design has already been made up and they can't affect um, what the design looks like, but there's so much of the process that can be affected that may or may not affect the final product, but the process is just as important too. Well, thank you. I learned a lot <laughs> from not being an architect. I learned lots. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I wonder as we as we prepare to kind of sign off, I like to close each episode with the queer cue, which is basically me asking the guests to share something or a few things to add to the queue or a catalog, if you will, for additional resources or educational opportunities, you know, whether that's a book or a program to look into or a moment in queer history to educate yourself on. Do you have anything top of mind that you would add to that cue? The thing I would add to the queer cue is Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which was new to, news to me. I know it's not news to a lot of people, but it's the it's the riot in San Francisco that happened um, and it preceded Stonewall. I feel like Stonewall gets all the fame as Stonewall and its aftermath. And I think what's important about that, the Compton's riot is um, it led to um, actual changes within the San Francisco Police Department um, and led to partnerships with um, like a nearby church to make the streets and um, and other like public spaces safer for um, trans and queer people in San Francisco. I think most kind of queer history events do not end in like, do not end in rainbows, you know, like, and not to say that this was like the happy ending, but it led to actual changes. So I like to uplift that, that event in queer history as like an example of like, it's not all death and destruction, even though sometimes it feels that way and rightfully so it's that changes can, can spring from, from those types of events too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think, like you said, Stonewall gets a lot of the the attention, um, which don't get me wrong, it it should and it will and it does, but there's so much more beneath the surface that leads up to Stonewall and follows Stonewall. It's an important piece of our queer history to to know about and to study up on. Well, AL, thank you. Thank you for taking some time today to to chat and to be a part of the conversation. Where can listeners keep up with you and your work and queries? Yeah, people can find queries at, um, we have a website, it's queries.xyz. And we're also on Instagram with the same handle. So at queries.xyz. Um, you can find me sharing too much information on Twitter my Twitter handle is at a underscore L underscore H U A L P. Yeah. And if you find my personal Instagram, go ahead and follow it. But I don't, I don't, it's public, but I don't like to share it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't even post on it that much. It's just like, I'm just it's like, just there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just there. <laughs> it's random. <laughs> You'll see a lot of my cat. <laughs> hey, sometimes we need that, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. 
<laughs> well, I'll make sure to include those in uh, the the show notes uh, so that listeners can go and follow and check those things out. But yeah, once again, thank you so much, Al, and I hope that the rest of your weekend is lovely and enjoyable. And um, we will we will keep in touch and chat soon. Awesome. <laughs> This has been Queer by Birth, Proud by Choice with Jake Federowski. I ask for your patience as I venture on this journey. If I have said anything that came across as offensive, uneducated, or simply incorrect, please feel free to contact me. I look forward to listening and learning. You can email me at qbbpbc at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter and or Instagram at QBBPBC. Please like and share as you are able. It is much appreciated. Last but certainly not least, I'm forever grateful for the wonderful artwork designed by my friend Kristen, whose website will be linked in the show notes.